Oh, hey there. Welcome, everyone, to the Food and Movies Podcast. This is your host, Paul. That's my friend, Jeremy. This is the podcast where we investigate the intersection between popular films and the food in them. Jer, what is the movie of this week? Well, it's a, it's a, it may be a controversial film because of the director but and leading man, but uh, we are doing Woody Allen's movie, Annie Hall. Yes, we are. 1977, Annie Hall, the seminal anti-rom-com that uh, intellectuals, pseudo-intellectuals, hipsters, hippies, liberals, and uh, anyone who considered themselves cool or smart found that it changed their entire conception of what a romantic comedy could be. Whew, man, this was a good one. This was a really good one, man. Yeah, it, um, you know, yeah. it, it really had a lot in it. Like there, there's so much to unpack from a film side of it. Now, mm. And you, you know, you're the film guy, but I mean, it had, it reminded me, if you look at these movies from the seventies, it had elements of like dark stuff, like Harold and Maude kind of stuff. And then it had like, it's just like, you could see things that it, like it had, a, it almost felt like it influenced things like Seinfeld. In a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. There were a, oh, lot of, yeah. a lot of just throwaway scenes about nothing. A lot of like, you know, New York kind of thing. Like he's he's a, he's a New York film director. He's kind of the New York film director. So this was like a love story about New York as much as it was a love story between two people in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. But yeah, your your thoughts your Give me the give me yes. the, the rundown here. So, so for the people uh, listening at home who are new, uh, Jeremy and I will first give our th- initial thoughts of the movie before we go into investigating all of the food in the movie in a chronological way. And then after we do that, we'll give our parting thoughts and awards, food awards for the movie. So my initial thoughts, I've, I saw Annie Hall when I was a teenager, really liked it. I had not revisited it until now. I don't think I've ever rewatched it until now. And, you know, as a grown man, it, it really, I found it much better as a yeah. mature person watching Annie Hall. So much, so much happened in this movie that I can now relate to yeah. as, a, as a grown up, you know, yeah. I don't know if you found that, but I really found that. Um, yeah. And also the, the, the influence that Woody Allen, that the movie had from French New Wave and also from Italian new, neorealism, Fellini, Godard, all those pretentious guys. I can see it more clearly now. And also, we're going to get into it as the as the as we start talking about the food. All of the influences, all of the things that this movie influenced later on, which I can now see, and I think we can all see. But um, it's it has so many, you know, as ad guys, we're both ad guys. It had so many ideas in it. Yeah. It was just chock full, like the idea per minute and per minute of this of this movie was just really off the charts. It was just one thing after another thing after another thing, one cool thing after another cool thing. And um, I, uh, yeah, that's those are kind of my, my initial thoughts. What, what, what else do you have to say about it? I was like completely impressed with, because, you know, Woody Allen, we've, we've talked a few times about these directors where you're like, that is a XYZ movie. Like that is a Bas Lerman movie. That is, yep. Woody Allen, I don't, I, there are other people that shoot like him and there are other people that have his his kind of it's almost like an, an a no style style like yeah uh, that, yeah it's very it's very kind of yeah go ahead sir no, no i like i that's something i would love to hear your take on 
Um, yeah. But then it it's almost like a a, a really good student film. I, I don't know. <laughs> That's how to, funny you mentioned that. Yeah, you're right. It, I don't it almost know how to doesn't describe work. It. it almost yeah. doesn't work. But then yeah. there there are scenes like when he's driving with uh, Annie Hall for the first time in there in the VW. Yeah. And it's shot clearly like with a handheld camera in the passenger seat. But the way yeah. that's shot like gave me anxiety. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it was an anxiety inducing shot. And I couldn't even like I couldn't stop watching it. And then there were some scenes where he did the subtitles. Like what he oh, was yeah. trying to think. Of what, <laughs> I had forgotten about the subtitles and I was just so tickled by it. And he's just he's just doing what he wants to to give you like. The more perspective into what's happening on screen and he doesn't he, there's almost no rhyme or reason for it like he's just trying things that's how it feels to me but i know he's a meticulous guy in the, the way he shoots and the way he wants his films so i know it's not that but it's he's so flawless at trying to make it seem like he's just haphazardly put it together mm-hmm. like it's amazing to me i really enjoyed it actually yeah oh and we should probably give a disclaimer uh, at some point. So disclaimer, we understand Woody Allen's canceled. We both get that. Uh, we're going to try, we're, we're, we're going to attempt to dissect this film a, as a piece of art and him as an artist. We're going to try to remove ourselves from yeah what he uh, what he did or was accused of doing. Yeah. We, we get that people might be offended by that. And hopefully we're not going to get canceled or pre-canceled because no one listens to this podcast. So I mean, look, if, you the, know, if the four people that watch this want to stop watching it, we get it. Um, yeah, but, two of whom are my parents, by the way. Okay, well, if you lose your parents, we're screwed. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, that's true. Even, even my mom was like, I don't really get this, but all right. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, hey, shout out to Jer's mom. Hey, hello, what's your mom's name? Penny. Hey, Penny, good to see you. Good good to hear from you. Uh, yeah, leave she, us a comment if you can. She won't be, she won't be watching this. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> So that that is our pre cancellation uh, disclaimer on Woody Allen. Yeah, a tr- uh, but I, I, yeah, trigger yeah, warning, a, tr- a trigger, trigger warning, warning, so to speak. <laughs> if you are triggered by Woody Allen and praise of his filmmaking ability, this one may not be for you. And you know we apologize, obviously, but um, we can't ignore the fact that this is a film, this is a piece of art, and we can't not dive in and see it because that's just who we are. Um, yeah, it doesn't. Yeah. So it, it doesn't mean yeah. we we agree with anything that he's done or not done or whatever. Um, we are not. We're not going there. Right. We don't. We don't condone any of his activities off the movie set. But uh, I, I will say this though: I, I do have a theory about filmmakers uh, who are who have a style. I really think that filmmakers' personalities. Their style is a reflection of their personalities. Yeah. So you see Woody Allen's movies, they're just so jam-packed with ideas and thoughts and, you know, musings about psychology and philosophy and literature. Like, you can tell the guy, he's one of these guys, like, he's a, he's first and foremost a writer. And right. as a writer, you can tell he's just an incredibly curious person and he's just right. a voracious reader, right? And that right. comes across in his style. He's just, his mind is going a mile a minute. It's going from here to there to there. Different things are being connected so uh, the idea of style as a reflection of personality, I really think comes through with, with this film and all of his movies, actually. And I think we should just take a moment to understand the prolificness of this dude. I mean, he has literally made a, mo- a movie a year since, I think, 1973. Yeah. 
every they've written and directed by him every single year like my god is prolific like, what the hell is the term prolificness Pro- I th- prolific- we're gonna make that a t-shirt we're gonna make that a t-shirt <laughs> prolificity prolificity <laughs> no. <laughs> no but yeah you're right he is he, he is very prolific that's a good term for yeah. him. um yeah, yeah. which has neither a positive or negative connotation depending on you know you could be a prolific serial killer um yes but yes but he does you're right he makes a lot of movies um he has a, he has a style and even in some of his bigger films like like his midnight in paris movie it's still has that same kind of Woody Allenness? That they're almost these movies are, they have a neuroses to them, yeah. That, that actually matches his neuroses. It's like I, I go it I go to Seinfeld with it because Seinfeld was also that kind of neuroses of of another brilliant kind of guy, Larry David. Right there's mm-hmm. there's a neuroses there, and it, you really feel it. And that's I think that's a combination of all the thoughts he does have in his mind and all the kind of. The like the, the people he brings in, especially in this movie, where you know that couple where it's like I don't have an original thought in my head, and neither do I. Yeah, the waspy couple. Yeah, yeah, and that's why we work because <laughs> you know, like that's you see people. It, he almost like, and they did a scene where him and Annie Hall were sitting and commenting on people, and people do. My wife and I do it all the time. We, we say, oh, I love doing that. We, love you, it. You know, you pick people out and you make assumptions on them. And, you know, probably they're true because a lot of books can be judged by their cover. Uh, probably a lot of it goes a lot deeper than we think, but it's still funny. It's still entertaining. It's still a hobby. Right. And mm-hmm. it seems like he was doing that in this movie. Like the guy standing behind him in the movie who was just talking about Marshall McLuhan and then he pulls in Marshall McLuhan. That <laughs> actually made me laugh because I've wanted to do that so many times. Uh. God, and, and I'm sure, the, yeah, I'm God. sure people want to do that with us. <laughs> oh, absolutely, man. Oh, God damn. Marshall, who puts Marshall McLuhan in their movie for a cameo? Uh, that must be the only one. Let's be honest. Yeah. That's, well, this movie had a lot of weird kind of yeah, Paul Simon in there. Paul like, Simon it just coming had a, in. A lot of interesting people kind of show up. And, and, and so it was, you know, it was a lot of fun. Oh, so much fun. There was never a second of this movie where I wasn't just fully entertained and engaged. Yeah. Yeah, and then me as as a as a Jew, um, talk about it, buddy. The, and I want to I want to save a lot of this for the food because I think sure. this is a driving plot of the food in the movie. Um, yeah, are, and and also, and also I identify as I think Indians are brown Jews, so please continue. <laughs> yeah, um, but there are a lot of like very stereotypical Jewish tropes, and then stereotypical within the jewish community that maybe the non-jew uh may not know about or may not understand so there Mm -hmm. were a lot of kind of jokes that i found funny that maybe my 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 partner megan she didn't find that funny because she just it's it's not part of her uh like her her background like she just doesn't she gets it because i talk about it or because i kvetch about it but she doesn't Mm -hmm. like she's never experienced that so there's a lot of kind of Jewish experience in this movie, which I find very funny as well. Oh, we're going to get into it, buddy. Yeah. yeah. Um, But yeah, uh, save a lot of it for the food. Yeah. uh, On the topic of prolific, what was was the word we called? Prolificness or prolific? Prolificity. Prolificity. 
Prolificity. <laughs> Along with making a movie a year for what seems like 50 years straight, writing and directing, he also has written, I think, 16 plays. Wow. And he has also written, uh, it looks like, seven pieces of prose, I guess, essays, comedy essays. And he also, as he was a stand-up comedian before he was a filmmaker, and he put out six comedy albums. And he has, he has played the jazz clarinet every single Monday of his life since, I think, 1972, never missing a, a Monday, unless he was shooting somewhere. So this dude's got some energy, man. The, yeah. I mean, it's truly impressive, the output of creativity this dude has put out. So... Uh, shout out to his creativity, not his personal life. Shout out to his creativity. So. We're not, yeah, we're not going there. Yeah. But he's the kind, like I'm a writer yeah. by trade. Um, he's the kind of writer I kind of want to, without not personal life. Once again, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's the kind of writer I want to be. Like that, just it's almost a compulsion. Mm -hmm. Like he ha clearly he has to make things at all times. Yes. Like he's compulsively doing it. Me, I can turn my brain off and watch football on a Sunday. And be totally fine with that, not like writing down my thoughts or creating a poem or whatever. Like, I don't do that. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not that kind of writer. Uh, but he is. And it's, I'm jealous of that in a lot of ways because I, if I could be that, I'd be making millions of them. Yeah. I mean, I, th there is kind of like a weird, like Woody Allen notoriously has, has expanded, expounded on his fear of death. And his existential dread it's the it's one of the main yeah uh things that drives his personality yeah and i do i do have kind of a theory that if he stops making movies he will die like really? this is like a we like some witch put a spell on him and said if you stop making movies you're gonna die so this is why he has continued making movies every single year so, si so, so since his cancellation um mm -hmm. has he still has he made what movie did he make the last movie he made was Oh, geez, I forget the name of it. Uh, it's the festival, Rifkin's Festival. Okay, I haven't seen that yet. Yeah, he made that, and now he's making another one. He made another one after that. Yeah. So Rifkin's Festival, he was like almost fully canceled, and, and then he was he's... being canceled. And then he made another He got another one out of, the, out, of the, out of the bag. And now I believe he's fully canceled, so he's not making movies anymore. And I think he's switching to writing. I'm not sure what he's going to write, though. He, he's switching to full-time writing now. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure he could make movies. I mean, if we talk about people who have been canceled, CK just put out a movie, um, mm -hmm. I and he self-produced it. I'm sure Woody Allen has enough money to do that um, if he wants. It's mm -hmm. just, will he get the people to star in it? But does he need them? I don't know. Because uh, he's he's that good a filmmaker that I'm sure he can get certain people. You know, there are, there, there are the people that are into the canceling and there are people that aren't into mm -hmm. the canceling. Like, maybe dip on that side. I don't know. I don't want to make any political statements or get in trouble, uh, but I don't know. It's just like, I wonder if this is my, my, my just musing. I wonder if this is going to stop him from making movies. I think it actually, according to him, he has stated that he is no longer making movies and he's switching into writing because yeah, writing is something you, you don't need anyone's permission to do, or you don't need yeah. any actors to cast basically. So you really can't be canceled from writing, I guess. Yeah. Um, Cause so, yeah, he can just do what he wants, I guess. And I'm sure yeah. he's got plenty of money. So, well, he once said that he made more money uh, selling one of his home in New York City than he ever made from his movies combined, the, the one real estate deal. Hmm. So, 
Must be a lovely, yeah. must have been a lovely home. Yeah, I think it was like a 15,000 square foot one bedroom apartment sold for I don't know, <laughs> whatever stuff sells for in New York, man. It's ridiculous for, out there. $40 million. Yeah. New York. Yeah. New York is crazy like that. And, um, oh, God. But it's a great city. All right. Um, moving on to the meat of the Food and Movies podcast sandwich. We are going to chronologically go through all of the food that appears in the seminal romantic comedy Annie Hall, starting with the very first line of Open the movie, line. very first scene of the movie, where Woody Allen throws down the gauntlet and explains that his his uh, his philosophy of life, basically. He says, there's two Jewish women, women eating in the Catskills restaurant. One woman says the food in this place is terrible. The other one says, I know, and such small, such, oh, shit, I messed that up. She says, I know, and such small portions. Uh, very Jewish joke. Very yeah. Woody Allen joke. Yeah. Very much, I think, truly expresses in a very short amount of dialogue his philosophy on life and, and the yeah. philosophy of this movie and the philosophy of his character. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on him opening up the movie? With food and with existential dread, all wrapped into one <laughs> terrifically <laughs> poignant joke. Perfect way to do it through a joke, too. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I think that you can, from that, you can get what the movie is going to be about. I think he kind of opens up the plot and and his character, too, because it's, it's a character-driven piece. And um, you get a lot of what he is going to be like, that you know, that neuroses he's going to have from that one joke. There was another joke coupled with it, I think, um, in the upfront as well. Yeah, there was, there was, this, uh, it was the joke that says that um, I would never be a member of a club right. that would, ha I would never be a part of a club that would have me as a member. Right. And I think he, brings, which is approach to women, basically. Yeah. And he brings that up again at some point in the film too. That one comes back. Um, but the portion thing is interesting. Uh, and I think, you know, to to on a baseline level, uh, you know how you feel when you go into a meal and it's just not enough. Like in yeah. a, and if you, I have some Italian friends and and there are some fancy Italian restaurants near me, and I ask them like, "Oh, have you been to this restaurant?" And they're like, "Yeah, portions are way too small. That's not how I eat." You know, but I prefer, that's an important thing with Italians. Yeah, they want to be that. It's part of it's part of a culture, right? There's a mm -hmm. And, and Jews to a lot of extent as well. And I think there are a lot of food scenes that will explain this better than I could in this movie. So we'll go there and I'll, mm -hmm. and I'll give you that. I'll give you that. But, um, and people from the U S I just came back from the U S and as a Canadian, we have smaller portions. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and, but, but as a metaphor for life, it becomes almost this weird kind of, poetry and this kind of existential dread filled notion that mm -hmm. is, is fascinating and, and it's well, very, very Woody Allen. Well, uh, uh, as, as a Jewish person, the Jewish community, uh, humor and existential dread are both a very big part of your culture. I feel like, mm -hmm. you know, um, just, just from the history of persecution and things like that. And the fact that never having a homeland and always being on edge that something at any moment could go wrong where you, you know what I mean? Like things could go bad at any moment. And so there is this gallows humor, I think, that Jewish people have, which I absolutely adore, by the way. Yeah. It's so nice. 
it's endearing in a lot of ways. Um, but you know, with especially with what's happening now with a certain American celebrity and all that stuff. I'm yeah, not, I'm not, I'm not going to get too far into it. But Ooh, talking about canceling people, I know we're really Hello. this. This Whoa. episode is all about it. Um, I'm not going to get too far into it because I don't think. But that type of stuff, you can see the people that are afraid. There's mm-hmm. a and there's a you know and always an undercurrent of fear, and then you can see the people that are using it to make kind of some sort of comedy out of it. And I think that that is a very um, culturally healthy way to deal with things as opposed to getting upset and, and you know, going down that road and, and playing that, whatever. I'm not even going to get into it. But mm-hmm. I think if as a, as a culture and as a community, we've been able to joke about it and we've been able to joke about ourselves within that space. And... Um, it's interesting. And Woody Allen's always kind of done it. And he does it a lot in this movie as well. So it there's you're right, there's a kind of an endearing quality to it that um but then does it make it okay to make bad jokes about Jewish people? I don't know. And I don't care. I don't know. This is getting kind of dark. Uh, <laughs> this is getting very Woody Allen. No, but 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 but, but, it, but it is a part of it is a part of Woody Allen. It is a part of Jewish heritage. That that humor has come out of the darkness that has yeah. been faced by the culture, which it, uh, I, I think informs a lot. And I think it it really adds to the cult, uh, the entire culture of the world, because of the movies uh, uh, and 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 the the pieces of art that have been uh, created by Jewish people. Uh, out of humor, I think humor is probably the best way of cultural therapy in dealing with trauma. I agree. You see it in the black, you see it in the black community, you see it in the Jewish community. Yeah. Um, and any other cultures that have experienced generational trauma like that, I, I do think that one of the best things to come out of it, if you can, is to have some kind of a sense of humor about it. So. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 you know, in this day and age, it's probably more important now than ever. Um, yeah. without making too much of a political statement. Um, so yeah. also it's a New York thing. Oh, New York people are hilarious. There's a call. Yeah. They just have this. It's like, you know how the people are like, Hey, the British have their dry humor. New Yorkers have their own humor too. And even people that came from, I've, I've worked with a lot of people that came from other places and moved to New York. And within a year of living in New York, they start to exude that. And it's just yeah. like this weird, creative, funny type of humor that may not appeal to people in other parts of the, you know, other parts of the country. Um, but it's interesting. It's like when people make generalizations about people from Toronto, like we're we're cold and we're distant or whatever, which is very mm-hmm. true. Um, yep. It's it's like, yeah, but when we go to other places, we're warm and we're happy because we love that. But we also want to be able to shut that off and just like be, cold, <laughs> be cold and distant. And it's great. Um, and New York's the same way in a lot of ways. But it's funny. It like yeah. the people that have moved there. People move there and they get more creative. <laughs> yeah. The times I've been to New York, uh, the people I've – I've spoken to people just to get directions. You know, yeah. I'll speak to some guy who's like a traffic uh, cop or something like that. People with blue-collar jobs – uh, you'll talk to them, and these are clever, funny people, and they're just mm-hmm. regular working class people. But the the level of funniness, I think, in New York yeah. is two or three notches above 
any other big city in the world for some reason. Yeah, uh, unclear weird. how that happened, but yeah, this is it's something. All right, moving on. Minute three, flashback. Woody Allen's character, a young Alvy singer, is eating tomato soup, which shakes as the Coney Island roller coaster goes above his apartment. And this is a visual display of the nervousness, which contributes to the neuroticism he feels as an adult. Tomato soup. How do you feel about tomato soup? I personally adore it. Yeah, I'm a big with the with the cheese with a grilled cheese. Yeah. Tomato soup and a grilled cheese might be one of the most com- comforting meals ever. And I think that tomato soup in that situation as an expression of nervousness is a nice contrast. Yeah, he's nervous, but he's got that comforting. Whenever um, Megan is sick, hmm. it's I go out, I get you know five cans of Campbell's tomato soup and bread and like wonder bread like just the and cheese. bro you are, you are the best goddamn husband i've yeah. ever heard of the way you take care of your wife is truly something to behold everyone uh, should look at you should she, write a book or something about how to be in a happy marriage it's she, just incredible she takes care of me too it's, it's okay. there's about marriage is a whole thing um yes. but but you do you do those things you know the tomato soup and the and the thing so that when you need, you know, you need an edge on her later, you go, mm-hmm. oh, who made you tomato soup? Now you got to. Oh, nice. No. You're uh, playing chestnut checkers, bro. Yeah, I love no, this. It's miles, I'm thinking miles ahead. Um, no, but as just to, to tomato soup as a comfort food, when I'm sick, tomato soup, grilled cheese, that's the way to go. All the time. Oh, really? You're not into the chicken soup? No, I go there too. Soup? I go, okay. we, you know, Jewish penicillin, of course. Uh, of course. But, oh, isn't that matzo ball soup? Yeah, matzo ball soup, or uh, or with or like a, soup? an egg noodle. An egg noodle will suffice. Um, okay. Uh, and I've even used some pasta in a, in a pinch. You know, if you if there you, you go, you need some substance, right? Because tomato mm-hmm. soup is just broth. But the Jewish community makes the best chicken soup. I'm sorry. I'm, oh. I, I've had I've had like chicken is, soup. Is there a special name for it? No, chicken soup, matzo ball soup. Ch- just oh matzo balls. Okay. All right. But oh yes. But that broth, I don't know what we're doing. I, I don't actually have the recipe. I buy it from the kosher convenience stores or the kosher mm-hmm. uh grocery. Uh mm-hmm. and when I'm sick, that's kind of what makes me feel better, as well as the tomato soup and the grilled cheese as well. But okay. this was a great device, you're right, of showing his nerves, showing his neuroses, but then Doing it in a way that had the calming element of the soup, which I thought was very interesting. Yeah, it was a great visual display because the the the, the, the water or the, the liquid in the soup is shaking, the apartment is shaking, but he's still calmly eating it. So I think food as a calming thing for the character, while visually expressing nervousness, the apartment, every, his environment is nervous, but he's trying his best to be calm by eating this delicious soup. Really well illustrated as far as the visual storytelling technique all yes. around, by the way. Yeah, really nice. And I like okay. that he I like that he lived under the Coney Island roller coaster. That's great. <laughs> oh, I read on Wikipedia that that was added during the location scouts. It wasn't in the script. So that was oh, a, really? kind of a, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It totally added to it. Even like with the camera shake, I thought it was good. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Man, there's so many ideas in this movie. Yeah. It's just really inspiring. Uh, minute five. During the montage, which explains his neurotic childhood, his mother is scolding him while peeling carrots. And the 
the the way she peels the carrots is actually pretty violent. I mean, it looks really scary the way she's peeling the carrots. So I think the act of peeling the carrots while talking, uh, while scolding him about his childhood was a great use of food preparation as a visual, as a visual cue or a a mnemonic to show what she's, to, to, to go add to what she's saying. The overthinking hat comes on, and I'm like, "Is she a mask? Let's go. Is she emasculating him?" And I thought the same thing. I thought the same. I don't. <laughs> is know. this Freudian? Is this Freudian? Tell me right now. Well, I wouldn't put it past him. Okay, I totally wouldn't put it past him. But he is a Freudian, by the way. He, he's very yeah, much into Freud. Yeah, oh, for sure. Um, yeah. So there is a your mother, your Jewish mother, kind of eviscerating you or emasculating you, and then while the phallic symbol of the carrot. Yeah. So you're saying the carrots are not a carrot in this. Sometimes uh, a carrot's a carrot. Sometimes it's getting circumcised. You know, I don't know. Also, man, there's a lot. There's too many things. I mean, the the circumstantial evidence would say those carrots are his penis, right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you tell me. Yeah. I mean, are those carrots? We need to make a stand on this. That's not necessarily how a circumcision works, thankfully. Uh, but, but yeah, I think that they're like, if I were going to get into like that, once again, if we're ever going to do merchandise, we need to come up with an overthinking hat. Um, Mm -hmm. but carrot peeler, carrot peeler. Yeah. And a, and a carrot peeler, uh, you know, taking, shaving the skin off, uh, there is an element of emasculation there, which I thought was interesting. Okay. So we're going to go ahead and say that his mother shaving, uh, the skin off of a carrot while she's scolding him for something he did in his childhood. We're going to go ahead and say that that is a Freudian reference to emasculation. We're just going to throw that down. It's also a culturally Jewish thing. Like Jewish mothers are stereotypically overbearing. It can be emasculating. Um, Will, you know, in some elements will attempt to dominate your life. Will try and set you up with people there's a mama's boy thing within the Jewish community for sure. Um, yep. But it's kind of a, it's, it's one of these, it's not a hundred percent true. And it's also just kind of more of a comedic thing. Like it's, we use it as a, as a, as a catalyst for humor. It is very funny. I will say. Yeah. That. It's very, it's incredibly funny. And it's also, there's a dark element to it. So, um, yeah. but it, as time progresses, it's changed. Like newer generations of Jews probably don't experience it as much as the pre- as as this generation did, the one that's being explored in the movie. Yeah, I think you know once because you're right, the neurotic, overbearing Jewish mother—not neurotic, but the overbearing Jewish mother—as a cliche, just got so much cultural traction. Oh yeah, in the '70s and '80s, yeah. that I think now Jewish mothers are probably aware of it and are trying. And they're to going the other actively. Way. <laughs> not, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think it's. I think we've we've reached peak uh, Jewish mother in the '70s, '80s, and now we're kind of coming uh, regressing to the mean. I would right. say, but that is like you said, you miss spoke with neurotic but that phenomenon generated neuroses Mm, yes yeah right that's the that's kind of the theory that's kind of the humor behind woody allen Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways especially in this film his neuroses uh and i think this carrot emasculation thing kind of maybe sets that up a little bit in a very subtle way well listen if it takes a overbearing jewish mother to create someone like woody allen i say do it I say Jewish moms out there, 
Start bossing your kids around. Yeah. Start, you know, just in inter- intervene in their lives in every way, shape, and form. May, put them on edge early and often yeah. if you want your kid to be. But never, never praise them. Don't do never. No, <laughs> no, no, no. Never, never, never. Okay. Uh, we got a lot of traction out of his mother peeling a carrot. Yeah, more than uh, I thought we would. We're really, but this is Woody Allen, right? There's not a lot of food. There's not a lot of food, but there's a lot to be said about the food. There's a lot to be said about it. Okay, so Alvy is going along his life. He's uh, a, basically the movie is about Alvy, and he's going through somewhat of a midlife crisis. He is not married. He's trying to find love. He's musing about love, love, death, all the things you muse about when you are going through a midlife crisis, especially for a neurotic Jew in New, in New York City, I suppose. And he finally meets Diane Keaton's character, who is called Annie Hall, who some may say, there's a lot of, we should address this, actually. There's a lot of debate as to whether Annie Hall is a manic pixie dream girl. Are you aware of that trope? Um, The manic pixie dream girl? I'm not. Oh, you're not? Okay. No, please. So uh, I believe around the 90s specifically... There was a trope developed in romantic comedies written mostly by men about this certain type of woman that the depressed protagonist male would meet who just seemed to be this like free spirited, uh, yeah. you know, you know, and, and, and there was a lot of these. There was, uh, I guess the one that I noticed most was in uh, Cameron Crowe's movie with uh, Orlando Bloom. I forget what it's called. Uh, Kirsten Dunst was the yeah. romantic interest. And he's in a plane, an empty plane by himself trying to sleep. And she is this uh, stewardess who's just like all up on him. He's like, hey, hey, what's going on? You look cool. And let's play. Almost like a dog trying to play with them. You know what I mean? And I was like, this person does not exist. No, no, no. There's no way. And if this person does exist, she does this with everybody. Not you, bro. Okay. So it's like, it was purely a character created out of the imagination of depressed writers, depressed male writers. Yeah. But did it work as a like where I this is new to me, but this is interesting. Like oh, I'm, I'm fat, OK, but I, I get it because. Yeah, go ahead. I've seen a lot of movies where that is a thing like the guys. Yeah. Like, like there's like yeah. a, a kind of a deep existential funk happening with the dude. And then he's pulled out of it by this like bubbly whirlwind of a of a, yeah, like, I mean, a free spirited chick, you know, Tom Hanks probably built a career on that. But um I'm wondering if that is a is that a male that's a male driven trope, mm-hmm. but did when rom you know as a rom com is that is that based on because all right sidebar for a second all right let's go you, you take a book like or a movie series like Twilight right mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's a very um, the the female character is very underdeveloped she's actually very open she's in every every girl right and all but all the males are described to like to the letter right and this helped you know develop teenage girls got super stoked on this because everyone could see themselves in that female character but and then they could find the the boy that they thought was cute that whether it's the werewolf the vampire or the zombie or whatever the hell it was and um and they could they could feel part of the story I'm wondering if there was any female association with the, sorry, the pixie, what did you call it? Manic pixie dream girl. The manic pixie dream girl. I'm wondering if that was something where girls were like, actually wanted to, like if there was an aspirational element psychologically or what, I don't know. Um, 
That's fascinating. Yeah, it's it was definitely it was a it was a big thing in the '90s, which I noticed, and then someone actually gave it a name, and it became a trope. Wow! So and you and you saw it in a bunch of '90s films. Oh, um, for sure. Yeah. Like now yeah. that you now that you explained it to me, I'm like I can think of movies where I've seen it for sure, and it's yeah, and I can think of TV series too, and I can think of oh, yeah. very, very male dominant TV series where you know like Entourage there that was like a character every season. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I really the the manic pixie dream girl and the I, I I liken it to the magic Negro magical Negro that was a trope developed again by by white heterosexual writers who really don't know about something and it becomes mythologized in their mind. And so they invent what they like the best possible version of this thing that they know nothing about. You know what I mean? They know nothing about girls. So they invent this girl who's just like this freewheeling, openly liberal sexual, you know, and they're, and the girl is like pursuing them for some reason, you know, even though the guy's like mopey and depressed and doesn't want to deal with them. And she's like, no, no, you got to come with me. Yeah. Similar thing with the magical Negro trope, which is very much like, it's like the best a friend. writer's invention. It's the best friend. Like in every Tom Hanks movie, he had like a black, not every, but I think it was like Sleepless in Seattle. A team. lot. Dave Chappelle yeah. was there or something. And it was like, hey, I'm your. Yeah. And it's it's like, I don't think that friendship. I, I don't know. Like, Yeah. Like it, it, it was just a, a character friendship. there. Yeah, to, to show this guy was cool and metropolitan and, you know, uh, 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 not racist, basically. Is, yeah, there's is, a tokenism kind of thing there, right? If yeah. We, if it, we it, could say that, I don't know. I, I don't know. But the, the question is, though, going back to this, uh, people, there's been a, a ferocious debate as to whether Annie Hall was a manic pixie dream girl. I'm going to go ahead and say she was not. I think she did. She was a person who was her own character. She did have a life on her own. Woody Allen was not her full focus. You know what I mean? I think she was more of a full character. I No, I, I fully believe she was, especially with like with the singing career and, the, and her meeting Paul Simon and yeah. Woody Allen having his perspective on it, like the guy's trying to get with her. And then somebody's like, oh no, he likes this girl. He's totally into that girl. Like this is actually her... So yeah. I don't I don't think she was the manic pixie dream girl. I think compared to him, mm-hmm. who was this kind of like he was afraid to leave New York. He got physically ill if he went to L.A., which I thought was mm-hmm. very funny. Um, yeah, that she was actually normal, and he he was the, you know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah, she, yeah. She I was do know actually she, yeah. just a normal human being with aspirations, yeah. with dreams, and compared to him. She may have seemed like a manic pixie dream girl, but actually, no, she's just somebody with aspirations with, you know, the American dream in a lot of ways was for years to move west, go start a film career. People always went to L.A. and that's what it was Mm -hmm. and and yada, 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 where he was he's stuck in New York. He's the New York guy. He loves New York. That's where he belongs. He gets physically Mm -hmm. sick if he leaves New York. So. I don't I don't necessarily think she's classified as that. Yeah, I, I agree. I think she was just a regular kind of self-actualized person. And for someone who was a singer and in the entertainment industry, uh, a lady who, who was in that field, fairly normal from from the ones yeah. that I've met. She oh, yeah. seemed pretty normal. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, she was just kind of making a go at it. She she was yeah. You know, she still had humility in that regard. Like she didn't actually make it. But then, you know, to in order for her to achieve her dream, she's not going to be held back by Woody Allen. She's going to go mm-hmm. and do that. Yeah, and that's why yeah. that that great breakup scene. Yeah, we'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. Okay, so uh, another famous scene, minute seventeen, the lobster scene. This scene has been cited many times before. It's a scene that perfectly describes what it feels like to be in the honeymoon stage of a relationship. Yeah. You're just making lobster, but it is the funnest thing in the world. You know, you're with your, you're with your significant other, you're comfortable with each other. You're still in that phase where you're exploring each other's personalities, getting to know each other and everything is fun. Making the lobsters is fun. There's a, there's a danger associated with cooking lobster. Yeah, right. yeah. I mean, the, I, cooked, it, I cooked one last week, by the way. Yeah, I, it, it, you're from the East Coast, so you, you know. Um, but, Bro, I cooked this lobster, and I, I, I saw that you have to kill it before you uh, make it. Humane. I thought I would be, oh, I thought I'd be okay stabbing this thing. Horrifying, yeah. horrifying. You, I completely traumatized myself. I'm looking this thing dead in the eyes, and it, here's the thing. I went to get it from the lobster tank and the guy pulled it out and it started flopping around like it yeah, knew. Yeah. It knew, man. It yeah. knew that it was it was time. It was going to die. And so I bring it home and I put it on the, on the cutting board and he's looking at me, Jer. He's looking at me. And he's, he's just And I got the knife and, and the knife is right between his eyes and I'm like, what am I doing? I'm about to murder this freaking lobster, man. He's like, so I did it and it was the worst experience. You felt it, it bad? It was horrible, horrible. But let's but let's let's dive into that here. Like if you lie lie down on the couch, Um, Mm. as human beings, we've stopped. You know, we don't hunt for our food. No, you know what I mean. Like we do not. I go to a grocery store, and a fillet of salmon to me is a fillet of salmon. I I I didn't go. I didn't you know catch the fish, gut it do all that stuff it's just easily very much and this is a very old conversation so let's not spend too much time on it but right. still because of the way you have to eat a lobster because of the way you have to cook a lobster it has to be fresh you know it can be cooked and sat out for a day and you can you know make a lobster roll or whatever but if you want to eat a whole lobster you actually have to put in the work and it's yep. interesting in this regard because as Woody Allen, who is a Jewish man, he can't eat lobster. So clearly, he's he's breaking kosher. Um, which but is, is he is he uh, uh, observant of that though? No, it doesn't so. seem like it. But every okay. every Jew, whatever we eat lobster, I, look, I love lobster and bacon too. Oh, you do? I know you do. Oh, yeah, huge fan. But yeah, and I've reconciled that because I'm not that religious. But okay. like. And and that's just a kind of a that's a it's a very Jewish thing, and he's in a relationship as well, where it's like she wants to eat lobster. She has that little cottage out in you know Nantucket or wherever the hell it is, like in the in the in the Hamptons or something like that. And that's very they, very very waspy, very, very New contrast. York, very New yeah. York wasp. And yeah. so they, you know, he does this. He has probably no clue. He's probably never heard lobster before in his life. And Can you then, imagine Woody Allen trying to kill a lobster? Yeah, but this is the fun. And so what it used to be was <laughs> you, you'd throw it into the pot of boiling water and it would die instantly. Can't do that anymore. They get canceled. It was seen as inhumane. 
So yeah. now you got to stab it in the head. There's also a myth about hypnotizing it by stroking its face. I don't think that you can also it. throw it in the freezer. I've heard you can throw it in the freezer. Yeah, to sleep. But everything spoils the meat. Yada yada yada. Who cares? Yeah. Um, but to kill a lobster, to eat a lobster, you, unless you're at a restaurant, you're 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 doing the deed. Right. And that's something that humans have lost over centuries and centuries. So I think um, this scene, I don't know if it's, it's meaning to go there, but it seems to me that especially with you who just did kill a lobster, it's going there for you. Oh, man, it it really took a chunk out of my soul when I did. I didn't think it would, though, because I watched YouTube videos about it. And yeah, when I actually had to, to do it. It was a rough one. It was way worse than I thought it would be. Really, really bad. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, lobster was delicious, though. I yeah, lo- lobster's great. It was freaking delicious. It is. So the lobster scene, I think, um, just a great representation of character. And like you mentioned, he's Jewish, but he's not observant, so he can eat lobster. She is from a culture, a waspy culture, where lobster is considered fine and actually uh, a, a delicacy. And the fact that the two of them are having such a great time around the preparation of the lobster, I think it's a great example of that honeymoon phase of a relationship. Yeah. It really, like, you really felt it, I think. Um, so, yeah, tremendous scene with the lobsters. Shout out to the lobsters. Yeah. I don't know who ate them, but shout out to them. Okay. Whew. Minute 23. Uh, so, Woody Allen, just an offhand remark, because a lot of this movie is just talking in rooms which is very uh, theatrical, so, so almost like a play. He mentions everything, about our par- everything our parents said that was good is actually bad. Sun, milk, red meat, college. How much, that, how much do you think that is true? I think a lot of that is actually true. The sun is pretty bad for you. Now it's, milk. Nowadays, it's like people don't drink milk. People drink like almond milk. or And then even almond milk got bad because it's grown in California and there's no water there. Um, the drought, yeah. Oat milk is now pretty hot, but then there's supposed to be things in oats that kill you. Um, yeah. But I always found milk to be weird because who was the first guy that figured that out? Brave dude, man. Well, I mean, Real he, brave dude. he'd seen a boob and he saw a cow and he was like, yeah, it could be the same. But we're, we're the only species that drinks the milk of another species. Yeah. Right? So there's a lot of fat in milk and I don't know. Fat these days is considered not to be as bad as sugar. Uh, red mm-hmm. meat is still pretty terrible for you. Um, mm. So, yeah, I think that's college, good. though. He was right about college. college. College is a huge waste of time. University. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It can. It definitely is. There are some there are some benefits. I went I mean, I went out your way for university and, it, yep. you know, well, maybe I didn't learn as much. You know, I'm not a great philosopher. Uh, I never, my philosophy career never really took off. Uh, I did learn independence. I learned how to take care of myself, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's, a, it's like an ease into life, which there's there's something to be said about that. I don't know if it's worth the price. That's what I was going to mention. I think uh, in the last 20 years, college created, there was a college bubble, a tuition bubble, where college yeah. really did not reflect the value you got out of it. It, beca- it basically became summer camp yeah. for 18 to 22 year olds. Yeah. And the value I think was really the, the, the value per dollar spent, I think was just completely went completely off track. Yeah. Um, 
Back then, though, I think it was probably okay back when in 1977. But uh, yeah, I mean, he that shows a lot of foresight. Yeah, yeah, Woody Allen, the prophet, man. Yeah. Uh, one of the scenes that you mentioned before, and one of the great scenes in the movie, is minute 26. Alvy and Annie are driving in Annie's VW Bug convertible down, I believe, the um, uh, what one of the uh, parkways in New York City, and Annie is driving very fast, very recklessly. The camera is all over the place. Alvy, being a neurotic man that he is, very nervous about it, and then he picks up a half-eaten sandwich and asks her, "Is this a sandwich?" And she says, "Yes." Let's talk about this. So, a couple things I noticed: uh, the way it was shot, very reminiscent of the car scene in Godard's films, uh, specifically *Breathless*, I believe, with uh, Bill Mundo and uh, uh, Gene Seberg in the car. It was all handheld, all very uh, independent, kind of guerrilla style. It created an energy and yeah. a nervousness that reflected Alvy's inner life, and. While he's kind of freaking out, she's completely fine. She 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 is completely comfortable with what she's doing, but everything about it is a great reflection of what they're what he's feeling in that moment. This feeling of kind of exaltation, this this moving forward into something great and exciting, but also a little bit scary, maybe a lot yeah. a lot scary. Yeah, and the fact that she's driving, I think, is tells something about who's in charge of the relationship as well. And right. the sandwich being half eaten is, an, is, I think, a peek into her character in that, you know, as a creative person, she probably has more of an inner life and she's not too worried. Most creative people I know, their their surroundings are not very well kept. So what are your thoughts on the, the driving scene, the sandwich in the car? I think to, to really appreciate the, that scene, the scene prior to it at the tennis club mm -hmm. where – He's like, oh, do you want a ride? And she's like, oh, yeah, I'd love a ride. And he's like, she's like, you have a car? He's like, no, I, I'll i take a taxi. And she's like, oh, okay, but I, <laughs> but I have a car. And he's like, so then why did you accept a ride? You know what I mean? That, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. That, that conversation would never happen. Like That's that, a great that, conversation. That, That's a great exchange. Yeah, that level of openness would never happen. But it's also, it really encapsulated that courtship thing where you know you meet a girl and you're like you'll pretty much say anything mm -hmm. or do anything like and yeah i i do remember uh an instance uh in my life where I, w I was with a girl on a streetcar and she literally kept missing her the, the, her stop she kept missing it just to keep talking to me and I've, i'm sure i've done things like that myself just to kind of stay yeah. with the person so yeah right i've never because basically i'm just i'm a I'm a god with the ladies, so <laughs> no. But He's like, taken, ladies and gentlemen. Don't even try it. All right. Stay out of his DMs. But the things you would do, like get into it's was so funny that it was a Volkswagen Beetle. Because especially you have to the always going back to the Jewish undertones of this movie, he's willing to get into that specific make of car, which was very much promoted by the nazi party I, I believe hitler actually drove in one in a parade isn't that, that yeah is it very they called it the volkswagen the people's car um yeah you know it is what it is Oof. but in order to get laid he will jump into that car with a terrible driver and that scene perfectly encapsulates that that like what would you do to get with the object of your desire to be with her mm -hmm. Right. Literally risk his life in a car. Yeah. And, you know? he and, and you know, for a lot of people, that's like, 
that's the end game. But he's like, I'll I'll put up with this in order to get what I'm after, right? So it was a very good scene, perfect build. The sandwich I didn't really felt. I feel like that, yeah, you you pretty much nailed it with the she's creative, she's artistic. She probably does. Most people who are that way will have a thought, be eating, and be like, oh, I gotta go do this. I gotta, mm-hmm. you know, something will pop up. So, um, yeah. Let's explore that for a second. If you were with somebody in that situation and you found a half-eaten sandwich in their car, would you consider that a red flag? Would you put the brakes on at that point? Like, whoa, this person is not in control of their life, not in control of their environment. They've got a sandwich on the floor of their car. I should probably think twice. It depends how old the sandwich is. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. If she had right. just eaten it before the tennis game, fine, whatever. Mm-hmm. If it's been there for a while, mm-hmm. You know, I take care of my car. I don't, you know, my car is, I don't allow garbage in my car. I don't mind eating, but. You're a grown up, of course. There's no garbage in my car. And any No, there shouldn't be. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So. All right. So there you go. That's the uh, sandwich in the car. Whew. Okay. Another, tw- another phenomenal scene. One of my favorite scenes in the movie. Might be my favorite, actually. Uh, minute 29. Annie and Alvy are on an incredible New York balcony. Just yeah. beautiful. Just the most romantic looking scene you can think of. And they're having a conversation while drinking white wine. She has got the white wine in a wine glass. He has it in what looks like a juice cup. And they're having just a regular mundane conversation, but there are subtitles under everything they say, which express their actual inner feelings about what they're saying. Brilliant. I don't think anyone can argue with that. Great scene. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on this scene? And do you have any thoughts? I have thoughts on white wine. I personally love white wine. Yeah. I'm not a red wine drinker. I love white wine. I love crisp, really cold white wine. And as a man, it's kind of embarrassing. Really? I don't know why. Yeah. I, I feel like that's that seems to be something that men seems to be have to there's a pressure for men to drink red wine. Yeah, they 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 like the big bold reds with the steak like that. I mean, look, right. If to to somebody that this is what I say to that. I and I always say this because my dad who's a doctor um he's he there was a period there now I think he's loosened up on it, but there was a period there where he was like, "Oh, you have to drink one red wine a day." Like this is going back to that like thing with college and red meat and drinking uh, you're poisoning yourself let's just get that yeah right it's not healthy <laughs> it's not one glass of red wine is not some miracle cure yes there are some things in it that maybe will promote clearing your arteries or whatever who knows yeah uh, i'm not a doctor i'm not recommending one or the other um right. and i don't think there are many or any health benefits to drinking but the red wine masculinity thing. A lot of people think white wine is not really wine. Uh, there's just as much intricacy and interest in white wine. There's just as much that goes into making white wine. Um, I drink both. I love both. I think there's a time and a place for both. It mainly depends on what food I'm consuming. But mm-hmm. if I'm having a drink on a summer afternoon, I'm not pouring myself a big, heavy Cab Sauvignon. Like, I'm not doing it. I'm having... Thank you. I'm Thank having you. a Sauvignon Blanc. I'm having, you know, something a little, maybe a Pinot Grigio. I don't, I don't know. It's it's all my mood. But there's no that, that that whole masculine red wine thing. That's crap. Like it doesn't make sense to me because there's just as much to be 
you know, white wine, you don't age it as long. Uh, certain white wines you can. Um, but there's so much difference in white wine. There's so much interesting stuff in white wine that I don't think, I, I just, I, I don't buy into that masculine red wine. I mean, there is like a, oh, that's a big, bold, masculine wine. It's like, yeah, but it's probably not that good. Um, so I don't, I don't always agree with that. This scene is interesting, though, because it goes to show that they're both not, you know, when you get established as a person, uh, you know, you get your house, you stop renting, you get wine glasses and you get purpose driven wine glasses. Like, yes, you, you do. Red wine glasses, white wine glasses. You're not drinking white wine out of a, you know, out of a juice cup, juice cup or a tumbler or whatever, but or yeah. a coffee mug. And when I was been when, there. Yeah, when I was in my apartment and I still loved wine, I'd drink it out of whatever I could put it in. Sometimes out of the bottle. Who cares? Um, but you're a bad man, Jack. I'm crazy. I'm I'm yeah. a, I'm a nightmare. Um, mm-hmm. But this that's just an interesting scene. It just goes to show that they're they don't care. There's no pretense there. They they like each other, and they're just they're gonna drink to drink, and to drink with one another. Now, do you think her drinking the, the the wine out of a wine glass and him drinking it out of a juice cup has anything to do with their characters or informs them at all? Do you no. think it's a visual representation of anything? No, I think it's just an overall statement on, you know, she's single, so she has one wine glass. And if she's bringing company over, they're unfortunately drinking their wine out of a juice cup. Okay. Those were great nights when you're in your 20s yeah. and you're drinking wine out of non-wine glasses. Those were those were some fantastic nights. It's you know? it there's yeah. some, there's some romance to that, right? Yeah. Like you you're with a girl, you're having a great conversation and she pours your wine into a coffee cup. You're not going to be like, "Actually, can I have this in a Chardonnay glass?" <laughs> no. You're going to drink the wine because the wine's going to get you drunk. It's going to loosen everything up and yep. you know, hopefully once you get enough of that in you, things will happen, right? Right. Uh, holding hands and kissing is what we're referring to, right. uh, I believe. Yeah. Okay. Uh, minute 33. Small scene, but I think significant. Uh, Alvi and Annie are sitting in a New York diner. Man, I want to sit in a New York diner. Just And I think they're actually... Uh, I'm, sorry, but I'm going to correct you. It's a delicatessen. Oh, it's a deli. Okay. Yeah. Uh, sitting in a New York deli. Alvi... When the waitress comes, says, I'll have the corned beef. Annie says, I'll the pastrami on white bread with mayonnaise, tomatoes, and, le- and lettuce. Now, very much so, I think it it speaks to the the masculine-feminine kind of relationship as, you know, he's a dude, give me the corned beef. You know, not, not very sophisticated, not very thoughtful. It speaks to his character. He likes corned beef. Just give me the corn. Whatever it is, I'll take it. But uh, Annie... I think it speaks to her character where she's specific. She wants it a certain way and which was leveled up and actually taken to uh, a new height. When, when Harry met Sally, the scenes where Meg Ryan is ordering her lunch with um, Billy Crystal. Yeah. They make a big to do. They take this scene and blow it up even more in, in, in a comedic way. So do you think this scene affected that scene? Cause I think it did. Well, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to, this is one of those scenes, and this is kind of I've been champing at the bit to really get into this scene, and, and why I corrected you on diner versus delicatessen. In a delicate, yes. in a delicatessen, a Jewish delicatessen, specifically in New York, kosher deli, you would order 
corned beef on rye with mustard or corned beef, whatever. If you order corned beef, you're going to assume it's going to come on rye with mustard. And it's mm-hmm. a thick, thick stack of corned beef between two pieces of rye with deli mustard. And that's a Jewish delicatessen sandwich. Let's go. Let's go, baby. What you would never do, especially with pastrami or corned uh-huh. beef, which are very close to one uh-huh. another. There's a very, there's small differences between the way they're cooked. One, you'd never put mayonnaise on it. Oh, okay. we don't. That's dairy with meat. So you're not going to, mm-hmm. that doesn't happen in Delhi. And if somebody does that, they're kind of going to be like, all right, we'll do it. But Ooh, this we, exposes the cultural differences. Yeah, between. we know you're not one of us if you're doing yeah. this. And that's yeah. what he's getting at here. Um, okay. Is, and also lettuce. A Jewish deli sandwich is literally meat, bread, and a matzo ball soup or chopped liver platter or whatever you're going with it. But... Mm-hmm. So that's part of it. This scene to me as a Jewish person highlights the the Jew guy taking out the, the shiksa. You know what I mean? Like that's to what the, that, to the Jewish delicatessen. To the Jewish okay, delicatessen. Right. And, you know, the there's it's like when you go to a different country and there's some cultural norms you kind of just have to know and she clearly doesn't know and nor does she care. It's not So it would be like some me taking a a, a, a Caucasian lady and she orders chai tea. Yeah. You know? it's like, yeah. It's like, like it would be it would be a tell, basically. It's a tell. And yeah. so, but it does play into your original theory. And also, like, that doesn't negate, you know, when Harry met Sally, because the same thing's actually happening there. It's just she wants what she wants. She wants a sandwich her way. She doesn't give a crap about the cultural norms. And this is her kind of saying, like, look, I don't care who you are, I don't give anything about your neuroses. And mm-hmm. all the baggage that comes with dating a Jewish New Yorker, I'm gonna have my sandwich my way, and and he kind of is like taken aback by it, but he doesn't say anything because once again, like with the car scene, he's in love. She yeah. can, she can do whatever the hell she wants, and that does very much translate to the much bigger Harry Met Sally scene for sure. That scene is a very big kind of Jewish tell, and I've taken my wife who's not Jewish to a delicatessen and and watched how she goes but she she's kind of like into it anyway she's oh like, did something like this happen to you in your own life with your no wife? she went with the matzo ball soup like she did it she basically passed with flying colors and i was just like uh, yeah fantastic hey mazel tov. <laughs> put a ring on it bro put a ring on that yeah um so at minute 35 i didn't want this is not actually a food scene but i would i did want to call it out you called it out earlier uh making fun of strangers the two of them are just observing people and creating backstories for them and like funny names for them which is which i do you do um but in the movie kiss kiss bang bang shane black actually takes that scene very similar yeah but again explodes it more and takes it even further comedically so a, a nice Showing of the influence of Woody Allen 30, I think 30 years later, 40 years later, possibly. So. The film that revived RDJ's career, too. Minute 43, Easter dinner. Christopher Walken. Yeah, Christopher Walken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> perfect, so they're having. <laughs> perfect casting. Ahead, take, it, take, take it away, Joe. No, I, I, got, I just get excited because he's the perfect casting of like two. A, <laughs> this is like a, a non Jewish family through a Jew's eyes. 
right? Like, yeah, the, this is a very extremely waspy dinner. Yeah. And it's know. just, it, and this is him. This is a hyperbole. Like this isn't mm-hmm. how we actually view it. It's just funny because Christopher yeah. Walken, even without, he's barely acting. It's just, he's being Christopher Walken. He comes off as like a sociopath and that <laughs> no, he's got and, those crazy eyes. Yeah. And that's like a, a Jew fish out of water in, in the middle of a Easter dinner is it, And then I, Oh, how's the ham with the sauce? And he's like, it's great yeah. ham. Like he has any context of what good ham tastes like. And also the previous in the movie, they were, they were alluding to how her, I think mother or grandmother was very anti-Semitic. <laughs> so she's looking at him weird. Just through a great, dinner just a great thing that, that, that's what we're talking about when we talk about jewish humor we're not just dis- yeah. the, the woody allen's not disparaging the wasp community they they are who they are but it's just kind of that filter like it's just it, it's just we would find that funny as a, it's like a jewish it's an internal jewish trope that jews would find very funny and and i'm glad you mentioned that because that dinner, as much as you find it funny being a Jewish person, the split screen with the traditional Jewish dinner was absolutely Brilliant. tremendous. I, I thought, Brilliant. you know, so yeah. contrasting in, in, in the personalities and the energy of yeah. the dinner. Very is that, funny. Was that, is that true? Would you, do you relate to that? I mean, yeah, as a kid, I went to many um, non-Jewish households. Like I had friends that weren't Jewish. I grew up in, you know, diverse environments. But... um Going to like even the simple thing of they with dinner they'll have a big glass of milk with, <laughs> with their chicken and to me that's like to me that's it's just messed up but yeah. it's normal to other people and I, and so it's good that I could experience that growing up and I wasn't just fully only eating with other Jewish kids like I would go to different you know different types of people's houses. And have and have dinner and to have chicken with milk is you can't do that as a Jewish person. It's not kosher. Nope. But I loved milk and I love chicken and, and why not? It works. But it's weird. It's very weird to me. Like yeah. I would never do that. I would never have a big glass of milk with my steak dinner. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, I remember going to other people's houses when I was getting like I'll come from an Indian family, okay? So everyone's house was weird to me as, as yeah. far as their dinner goes yeah i went to my friend craig's house and they were having surprise surprise some kind of meat with mashed potatoes yeah like a, and they used a ice cream scooper to scoop the mashed potatoes oh. which i just blew my mind i was like what oh, yeah. are you doing right now that's you an ice cream good. scooper that's a cafeteria move <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know that one blew good. my mind i still remember it to this day um and i do believe it was steak and it was tough as hell which I think you spoke about this earlier with my aversion to steak early on in life. That probably yeah. a lot to do with it. Yeah, probably. Um, yeah. But in that, in that uh, uh, dinner scene, there is a scene where he goes off and sees again, Christopher Walken as the weird brother <laughs> sitting on the bed, acting weird, saying yeah, weird just things. Being a weird guy. Yeah. Which was once again, leveled up and taken to the next level in wedding crashers. With the brothers scene with yeah, Vince Vaughn you know into that guy's house. There's yeah. like that clearly that was borrowed because he's uh that's I mean, Walken played it very well, and then the guy from Winnicrad, who was in the T V series Gotham, he played the penguin. He I forget the guy's name, but he's actually he, he, he he's like type typecast as a weirdo. Yeah, but he's a good good actor as a weirdo. Like I believe yeah. him. He's very good. Um yeah. so good yeah, that's that's a very 
clearly there was some influence there for sure. There had to be, right? It's like the meet yeah. the, the meet the parents scenario, and the rest of the family is just bananas. This is one I really wanted to get into. Is minute forty nine. This doesn't have anything to do with food, but I really wanted to call it out. Annie talks about a dream she has where Frank Sinatra is holding a pillow over her face and she can't breathe. We got to get into this. We have to. Okay. Because Woody Allen married Mia Farrow. Right? Yeah. yeah. Mia Farrow had previously been married to Frank Sinatra. Yeah. F- Mia Farrow and Woody Allen's supposedly legitimate son is Ronan Farrow. Have you seen Ronan Farrow's face? Yeah. Yeah. It is Frank Sinatra's it's son. Weird. I mean, like, it is definitely Frank Sinatra's kid. Yeah, I mean, weird. I don't think anyone can argue with that. And it, it does, is. It's not Woody Allen's kid. I can tell you that much. This, this is, if Greek tragedies were real life, this is the most solid example of a Greek tragedy in real life I've ever seen in my life. So he's married to Mia Farrow, who was, who was previously married to Frank Sinatra. He thinks his son is Ronan Farrow. Ronan Farrow grows up, is estranged from his father, grows up to be a journalist who is a major part of the Me Too movement, yeah. of which Woody Allen's career is taken down by. His son, his illegitimate son, who's probably not his son, takes him down in the most Greek tragedian myth- mythological way I've it's ever very, seen in real life. very Oedipus. Mm-hmm. Is it not? Yeah. There, I mean, without the stooping your mother part. Mm-hmm. But um, well, it's not. It's not. It's but they come up. But there's like, an Oedipal element there, uh, yeah. for sure. But yeah. the for but the foreshadowing in Annie Hall. Though, this is before he ever dated Mia Farrow. Yeah. A, he called his shot. He did call his shot, and that's amazing. Um, <sighs> I did, do. We want to keep going on this. You t- if you have anything to say, I've said what I had to say. You you tell me. Uh, no, I I totally agree. I'm actually now rethinking everything. Um, but great. when I saw that, my head exploded. Yeah, that's interesting. And then there was also a mention of later on. Maybe we'll get there actually. So hang on. I wanted to jump back for a second because I totally did. Uh, it, just looking through the notes, when we cut to that Jewish dinner, mm. they're eating brisket. Oh, shout out to brisket, Jewish brisket. Yeah, shout and out to that. pastrami, yeah. pastrami and corned beef is a form of brisket as well. Uh, today's mm. recipe will be my. Jewish brisket recipe. Oh, so baby, I will, let's and, go. And it's very, very easy to make. It's not like you're not smoking it. You do it in the oven. Very easy yeah. to make. So I will, I will, we will definitely have that down in the comments. It's 100% simple uh, if you can find the ingredients, which aren't too hard to find. So uh, totally, we will, we will do that for sure. Oh, that sounds amazing. That sounds amazing. All right. Uh, do you have any comments on the real life uh, Oedipus uh, myth that Woody Allen has li- called sh- his shot in and has lived out? No, I'm totally still trying to digest that. But yeah, he totally. <laughs> I, to- I totally agree with it. Uh, there's another thing he says down the line, which when we get there, I might bring it up. Uh, but maybe I won't because it might be too controversial. Okay. All right. Uh, yeah. Mind blown by that comment. Man, sometimes the universe just is just throws something at you at a left field, man. Like, whoa. Yeah, it's it's a bit cruel in a weird way. A lot of times it usually is, right? Oh, man. Uh, minute 105. Again, this is not a food base, but Paul Simon hits on Annie right in front of Alvy. Yeah, they're drinking. Do you think Paul Simon's a dick? Oh, they're drinking. Do you think Paul Simon's a dick? I've heard. 
I've heard like rumor. Simon and Garfunkel broke up, and I've also heard that it's because of Paul Simon's a dick. I heard I've uh, heard that he's Garfunkel's like Garfunkel's actually cool. I don't know. I've seen him in interviews. He seems like a good enough guy. Um, How about this? How about this? How about this? Paul Simon, Woody Allen, who wins in a fight? In a fist fight? Fist fight. Paul Simon. Yeah, you're right. Woody Allen, I don't think he could fight anybody. Paul Simon's, a, he feels a little more street for, you know. A little bit, yeah. A little but what, bit. What, yeah. But what I found funny about this movie is like, Paul Simon starts loving on LA and he's a huge New York guy. Yeah. So, so like, there was there's comedy there, you know, hindsight of having <clears throat> 20 years on this film. There were some funny things in that and the way Paul Simon did that I thought was very funny. Man, can you imagine just going up to somebody and hit, basically hitting on, like, hitting on their girlfriend right in front of them like yeah, that? That's ballsy. A douche move. Ugh. Ballsy. Yeah. All right. Uh, anyway, Paul Simon's a dick. Come at me, Paul Simon. I'll freaking slap your <laughs> stupid I, face. I never, I've heard, I never picked a side. Paul, if you want to work with me, if you want to collaborate on anything, let me know. Yeah. Listen. Just down, uh, in, as, down in the comments. <laughs> I, I feel like as a representative of the Paul community, I don't like this guy. I just don't like him. He's Listen, giving. He's giving. Paul Graceland was amazing. Name. Yeah, Graceland Great was amazing. Love Graceland, but uh, frankly, I think you're a bit of a dick, Paul Simon. I've never met this guy, by the way. All right. Anyway, all right, bold. One ten. One ten. Alvy is in a post production session on a TV show. He starts to feel queasy. His producer asks him if he would like a ginger ale. Yeah. I've this. This has been like a thing. This has been a meme in the culture forever. I don't think ginger ale does anything. Does nothing. No, ginger right? is. Ginger is supposed to settle your stomach, but when you think what's in a can of Canada Dry, there's no way that's settling your stomach. It's, it's like all sugar, pure sugar. Yeah, yeah. You have some. We gin- gotta we gotta put this ginger ale myth to rest right here and now. Yeah. As a podcast, ginger ale does nothing for your stomach. Get some Imodium. Get some yeah. uh, Pepto Bismol. Whatever. Just uh-huh. don't eat ginger if you have to. Have ginger right. tea. But if you're not drinking a can of pops, I'm not going to do anything for you. Come on. No. Uh, yeah. Unless, you know, Big Ginger Ale wants to sponsor this podcast. We'll yeah. take your money. We'll, you know, t- we'll, we'll take ed- this all back. We will edit this out if Canada Dry yeah. wants to sponsor us. Yeah. So if Ginger Ale does not sponsor us, F them. Ginger Ale does nothing. If you do want to sponsor us, we completely encourage Ginger Ale for any kind of ailments. And, and we will ailments. make any outrageous medical claims you want. Ginger ale. Whatever you need. Ginger ale cures dementia, whatever the hell you want. Yep. We'll do it. Yep, yep. Whatever you need, ginger ale. Yeah. Um We will so sell at, we will sell out to big ginger ale. Yes, sir. At uh, one hour, eleven minutes in, Alvy is in bed. His doctor offers him plain chicken. Is that something that you think would help at all? No. I mean all right, chi- chicken yeah. a, a, a cooked chicken breast is probably one of the most neutral things you can eat. Uh, but mm-hmm. I like that he puts salt on it and he starts enjoying it. After he yeah. fi- after he <laughs> finds out he's not going to be on the show, he's like, "I got to get out of this mess." So clearly, it's part of his neuroses, right? Oh man, yeah. Okay, so now we come to possibly the most significant food scene in the movie. Again, we mentioned in Goodfellas a great bookend food scene in that film with the Italian sausages. A phenomenal bookend food scene here. <laughs> One hour, 17 minutes in. Alvy has moved on to a new girlfriend. It's yeah. the exact same scene in the exact same kitchen. They're making lobsters. It is not fun this time. No. It's not fun at all. And, he's, and she's like, you act like you've never cooked lobster before. Or something. Like she, she just, everything that was cute. With, 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 <laughs> yeah. Everything that was cute with Annie. 
is not cued at all. I have been in this situation. Yeah. I, t- do you tell me, have you been in a situation where you're with someone new and you do a bit or a joke or a tell a story which killed with this other person, this other relationship you were in, and this new relationship you're in, it just falls completely flat? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure I have. I've, nothing comes to mind. But like with when you're with somebody and you're dating somebody and you love somebody, whatever, um, th- these little inside jokes, these little pet names, these little, oh, you remember that time where we, you know, tried to cook this and it went da, 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 yeah. da, and oh that was so funny and then you try to recreate that somewhere else or you tell that to somebody it's like when you and the universe won't let it happen yeah, the universe yeah. won't let it happen you tell your friend the story oh we tried to cook lobster the lobster went behind the fridge and they're like well that's stupid like why didn't you yeah just, i know why didn't you just murder the thing and put it in the pot and it is you know it's one of yeah, those like, thanks you, dick i'm trying to tell you a fun story <laughs> yeah, like, you should have been there moments right yeah yeah but as a as a as a use of food as narrative technique and character technique, the book ending of the two lobster scenes. Very good. Are we going to say masterful on this one? Yeah, absolutely. High level, right? Absolutely. Which brings us to the last food scene in the movie. One hour, nineteen minutes in, Annie has moved to Los Angeles to pursue her career. Alvi is feeling lost in New York. Goes to Los Angeles to chase her down. Yeah. Like a psycho. Meets her at a vegetarian restaurant. He orders very comedically alfalfa sprouts and a plate of mush. Uh, uh, sorry, alfalfa mashed sprouts yeast. and a plate of mashed mashed yeast. Yeah, which is just totally a knock on West Coast lifestyle. Like that's just a New yeah. Yorker's knock on a West Coast health. Like we do it in Toronto. We make fun of BC all the time because um, you know yep. they are they're they're very healthy and we're perceived as not to be. It's New York versus LA. We have that same thing in Canada. Um, yeah, it's, it's funny. Like it's just a, it's a, it's a New Yorkers bash on LA fish out of water. Funny thing. Like you yeah. bunch of hippies, look at you guys eating this mashed yeast. Yeah. And then after he, he places the order for the gross vegetarian food has an incredibly awkward conversation with Annie where he tries to get her to marry him. I wanted to crawl into my shirt when this was going on. Yeah. It was, it was a rough scene. Oh, it was a rough scene. Whew. Yeah. Anyway, any thoughts on the food? Here? Uh, I mean, I don't know what mashed yeast is. I don't think I'd ever <laughs> eat it. But uh, yeah, no, that's okay. How about this? How about this? How about this? If 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 you were going there to chase down, uh, you're you're happily married, by the way. Uh, sorry. Uh, pre-marriage. Sure. Yeah. If you're going to chase down uh, the love of your life, who you are married to, by the way, I don't want any trouble. Would you order alfalfa sprouts and a, and a plate of mashed yeast during this mission to get this love of your life back? I don't think I'd ever order alfalfa sprouts and a plate of mashed yeast. I don't mind. What would you, what would you order then? What would you order? Yeah, well, I mean, look, I think he's doing the one in Rome, do as the Romans do. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, if I'm going after the love of my life, I think I'm going to want to probably carb up a bit. Okay. Get some energy, get my mind right. So I'm pasta, gonna, perhaps. Yeah, I would eat something, something a little more hearty, not too hearty. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be lethargic. But no, you know, maybe maybe some fried chicken. Okay, yeah. fried a little bit energetic, a lot of a lot of fat, a lot of carbs. Yeah. Uh, okay. I don't know what I would eat if I was going to. Here's the thing. In my experience, once you're broken up, 
there's pretty much no chance of getting back together uh, that I can think of. Yeah, I mean, in high school, more so you'd get back together because it was like... No, I'm talking about these are 40-year-old people. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's but, like... Yeah, I'm saying like get break up, getting back, break up makeup is more of a young man's game, young, young yeah. person's game. Um, yeah, that's kind of fun when you're young. But when you're older, yeah. I think people are pretty decisive when they end a relationship. Yeah, I mean, usually when you end a relationship, it's not... It's not on the terms at which Annie and, and, and Woody there ended there, like which was so initially looked very personable. And it seemed like the door was open because he even said, oh, and we if we want to get back together, we get back together. You know, yeah, but but then clearly she didn't want to. She but this was her breaking up with a lifestyle as well. Right? Yep. She was breaking up with that New York lifestyle. She thought that was what she wanted. And she thought there was, a, you know, the that cynical creativity that comes in New York was her scene. But then that optimistic, sunny LA lifestyle seemed to appeal to her more. And, and he can't, where she goes, he can't fall. And I think that, yeah, that, that I, scene really encapsulated that. Yeah. I think for a sad scene, for a sad sack scene, yeah. the alfalfa sprouts on the plate of mashed yeast perfectly as a, uh, do we have a name for that? As a representation or a metaphor it's it's not pathetic fallacy, which is what the weather reflects yeah, in her yeah. feelings. Yeah, we should have a name for food reflecting the inner turmoil of a character. Pathetic cuisine. <laughs> pathetic cuisine. Pathetic fallacy. Cuisine fallacy. Cuisine fallacy. Cuisine fallacy. Yeah. All right. Okay. I'll so say, as yeah. cuisine fallacy, we gotta get the trademark on that. By the way. Yeah. As cuisine fallacy, alfalfa sprouts and a plate of mashed yeast as a Basically, a suicide mission to try to get back together with the yeah. love of your life. A lost cause. I think perfect. A lost Perfect. Cause. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah, God bless sure. her. All right. All right. Those were the... Yeah. We, we got yeah. through it. We got through it. We got through it. We got to do our closing thoughts and uh, awards. Yeah. Uh, award. You want to start with awards or closing thoughts? Let's, let's go with awards, then closing thoughts. So, best use of food... Or sorry, no, we'll, we'll go with who do you want to have dinner with in this movie the most? I mean, probably Annie Hall. You're going Annie Hall. Okay. Yeah. She seems she seems interesting. She seems, you know, she's hot. <sighs> I can't say Annie Hall myself. I'm going to have to go with Paul Simon, the, the fake Paul Simon character. I, I, I got to straighten this dude out, man. I was going to go there, but just his hair was so off-putting. I can just imagine me sitting down and eating with this guy and him being so smug that I just start a fight with him. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's like, yeah, I'm almost having, having, if I were, my second choice would be the guy standing in line behind him at the movies. Oh, that guy was great. Yeah. <laughs> just so I could enjoy listening to that shit. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. stuff. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, Annie Hall. Well, Annie Hall's great. Annie Hall's yeah, great. Yeah. The movie's be, called Annie Hall. It'd be yeah. a nice date. She's entertaining. Uh, no, no big surprise there. But like Diane Keaton. She's a great actress. Let me ask you this. Yeah. If you were, let's say Annie Hall was 25 and you were 25 yeah. and you met Annie Hall at a party, do you think you would have fallen in love with her right in the spot? I don't know about on the spot, but I would have been, I would have talked to her. You would have been enamored by her? somebody. Would I would have been interested in. She seems like an interesting person. Um, she seems intelligent, but she's human. 
confident. You yeah, know? there's a confidence. Well, there. superficially confident. But, I think. but that's why I, I say she's, she's human, right? Like she's putting yeah. on facades, but so is, you know, Woody Allen's character. So is Paul Simon's character. They're all put. They're all putting on some sort of facade, and that's why that tennis scene is so good because they're trying to be cool. They're trying to play it cool, but they're not. And that's why yeah. the 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 subtitle scene made a lot of sense because it does go to show that when you're trying to meet somebody there's underlying subtext to what you're actually saying and and what you're saying may not actually be 100% true or if it's or if it's true or false is it's irrelevant it's you, you're trying there's a grand manipulation happening that even you don't you're not trying to do it but you you are you're trying to get laid or you're trying to get with somebody or whatever right so yeah. That's something I found that a good takeaway from the story, and that's why a twenty-five-year-old Annie Hall would be interesting to me. She's human. Fair. I, I'm pretty sure I would have fallen in love with her on the spot. Yeah, it's good looking. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, just just her personality was so Everything. great. I just a, I was into it. There's a yeah. lot of endearing qualities. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so next uh, award is best use of food in the movie. I think. I think we gotta go with the lobster. I'm going so, with lobster. You're going lo- the bookend I'm, lobsters. I'm going with that deli scene. Oh, the deli scene was good. I'm getting the deli scene really showed how culturally opposed the two were. Yeah. Oh, yeah. and also the Easter Easter dinner was damn good too. It was a great scene too. But the deli scene for me, it it, it hit home for me in, in ways that the lobster scene, I got it and I thought it was a great, you know. It's like in Goodfellas, the prison scene is amazing, but there are other food scenes that tell me a little bit more. Um, mm-hmm. And the deli scene really told me a lot. Mm. Okay. Closing thoughts, Jer. Uh Yeah. Fun to jump back into Woody Allen. Um, haven't, haven't watched a lot of his stuff recently, not necessarily because of any political reasons, just because I haven't. Um, fun to jump back into this movie because I think both of us kind of uh, hadn't seen it for years and years and years. I think I saw it when I was a kid and probably could care less. Um, but now really had had a good chuckle. Like it was a fun movie and it was a different kind of rom-com. And I wish movies today would, would push in ways that this movie pushed and would kind of make me would have some cultural references that may be a little bit hard to understand or even, uh, you know, even could be seen as offensive in a lot of ways. I, I, but, you know, as a Jewish person, I like to see that. We all like to see ourselves represent represented in film, and Woody Allen's been a way for us to be represented in film. Um, but I would like to see it with other cultures too. You know what I mean? Like, I'm waiting for the uh, the the Indian Woody Allen. Or I'm waiting for the Chinese Woody Allen. I want to, you know, this is a great window into Jewish culture, a great window into how Jewish culture experiences other culture, um, albeit a bit, you know, in a lot of scenes, there's a lot of stereotypes happening, but there's truth in stereotypes in a lot of ways, too. So I don't know. I think great film, interesting food film, not a ton of food, but a lot to be drawn out of that food. So your, your thoughts, sir. Fair, fair enough. Uh, I, I just wanted to say about Woody Allen, uh, whatever you, yeah, again, we've addressed the cancellation. I will just say this, you know, uh, all, all due respect to the cancelers and the cancellation. I respect your opinions and whatnot. But listen, the man has been making movies 
for 50 years ish 72 i think he started he's made a film a year ever since then this is the closing of an era this is the closing of a career we have to kind of i guess give a eulogy for an incredible body of work and an era coming to an end yeah. and the woody a woody allen movie was something that you could count on every single year for 50 years yeah. so moving forward I really want to see someone I I would love to see someone pick up the mantle yeah. and continue maybe not of course not exactly but I would like to see someone pick up the mantle and create content or movies in a Woody Allen at the Woody Allen level uh at, at, with the intelligence the humor the specificity and the prolific what was our name for prolificness prolificness prolificity prolificity of <laughs> Uh, of the Woody Allen. So uh, I'm putting it out into the universe uh, and, and you know, uh, Mr. Universe, Ronnie Coleman, eight times winner. Please uh, acknowledge what I'm saying right now. Give us uh, a new Woody Allen, possibly a better one if you can, yeah. because uh, there was something to these movies, man. There really was. They, they affected me a lot. They affect other people a lot. And we need movies that have a cultural and intellectual and uh, relevance uh, to get us through these dark days, which I think we still kind of are in. So those are my thoughts on Annie Hall, one of the greatest movies of all time, one of the greatest romantic comedies of all time. Shout out to that. Shout out to them. Yeah, I agree. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is the end of the Annie Hall episode. Our next episode is going, I forgot what it was. We're doing a kid's movie. We're going to do a Ratatouille. We are doing Ratatouille, an unabashedly foodie-centric movie. Yeah. So Ratatouille will be our next examination. That might be eight hours long. Yeah, it might, we might have to do it in two parts. Um, we might have to do Ratatouille in two parts. Ratatou uh, Ratatouille. Ratatouille. Uh, oh, 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 oh. You know, well, <laughs> on that on that bombshell, <laughs> I can't yeah. top that. <laughs> hey. Uh, thanks for joining us, ladies and gentlemen. You have a good day and uh, eat something delicious, possibly Jeremy's um, uh, recipe. So, yeah. God bless. Bye. Bye. All right. Good one, Jer. Yeah, that went well. <laughs>